This is Kick-Ass Politics. I'm Ben Mathis. Kick-Ass Politics is brought to you by Fiverr. You've heard me rave about Fiverr before. Fiverr is the world's largest online marketplace for services with over 100,000 categories all offered for a fixed base price of just $5. Logo design, business consulting, marketing, business cards, stationery, web design, translation, transcription, proofreading, legal consulting, and just about any other service you can imagine all offered at a base price of just $5. And right now, when you go to kickasspolitics.com and click on the Fiverr ad on our sponsor page, you'll be showing our sponsor that you support the show and you'll get some great offers on services tailored to your needs. Whatever you need done, find it on Fiverr. I could say that you're homely, just as homely as I. But this is Washington's birthday, and I've got to say you're beautiful because I can't tell a lie. In 1879, Congress figured it was finally time to give America's founding father his due. And so they passed an act making George Washington's birthday the first and only federal holiday honoring a U.S. president. It remained that way for nearly a hundred years. Then in 1971, Congress decided Americans deserved more long weekends. And so they passed the Uniform Monday Holiday Act, moving all federal holidays to a Monday with four exceptions, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's Day, and July 4th. That meant that George Washington Day got moved to the third Monday in February, ensuring that the holiday would never again fall on George Washington's actual birthday of February 22nd. It didn't exactly help that in the ensuing decades, the holiday took on a whole variety of names, taking away a good deal of the original meaning and intent to honor the nation's first president. You see, while the Uniform Monday Holiday Act established that the holiday previously celebrated as Washington's birthday would be moved to the third Monday in February, the law didn't actually give a name to the holiday. That was left up to the states to celebrate the third Monday in February, however they saw fit. So in Utah, Colorado, Ohio, Montana, and Minnesota, George Washington's been forced to share a double bill with Abraham Lincoln. Now, don't get me wrong, Lincoln's no slouch. If you have to have a joint birthday, you could do a lot worse. But still, in Alabama, it's celebrated as Washington and Jefferson Day. And in Arkansas, it's celebrated as George Washington and Daisy Gadsden Bates Day, in honor of the Arkansas civil rights leader. Now, I'm sure Miss Bates was a great lady, but George Washington was the father of America. Probably the worst version of all this is California, which just recognizes the holiday as the third Monday in February. <laughs> Way to show some imagination, California. Don't you suppose it's kind of a slap in the face to George Washington that some boneheads in Sacramento decided that the third Monday in February makes a far better holiday than our first president? Sadly, today only two states, Massachusetts and Virginia, still give George Washington his very own holiday. Most states now, either officially or unofficially, celebrate the holiday with the somewhat generic term President's Day. And from state to state, there's even debate as to the proper grammatical spelling of President's Day. Some states use the plural possessive spelling, putting the apostrophe after the S in presidents, 
Some states use the singular possessive with the apostrophe between the T and the S in President's Day. And then there's the real renegades like New Jersey and Nevada, which just completely forego the whole apostrophe thing altogether. However you spell it, President's Day was largely an invention of Madison Avenue. The big ad agencies realized that a three-day weekend coming on the heels of Valentine's Day, one of the biggest shopping days of the year, presented a prime opportunity for a three-day blowout sale in the same model as Labor Day weekend sales. But George Washington's birthday, or Washington and Lincoln Day, just didn't make for very good ad copy. It didn't roll off the tongue very well. So the ad gurus came up with President's Day. It was simpler, sexier, and you can also thank Madison Avenue for the inundation of President's Day car sales. Coming on the heels of the Detroit Auto Show and just before Americans get their tax returns, car dealers latched onto the third Monday in February as a prime opportunity to move some metal. In fact, today, most of us probably associate President's Day more with loud, flashy car dealership ads than with our first president. I can't help but think that something's been lost in shifting George Washington's birthday to that third Monday slash Washington and Lincoln Day slash generic President's Day with or without the apostrophe. If we hadn't had George Washington to set the countless precedents and the overall standard for the nation's chief executive, the presidency might be very different. Under another general, we probably wouldn't have won independence from Britain. Under the leadership of a lesser man, it's entirely likely that the United States would have remained a dysfunctional confederacy or might have turned into yet another monarchy or a dictatorship. It's doubtful that we would even exist as Americans today if it hadn't been for George Washington. And we can't even give him one lousy day? Well, I really shouldn't have to make the case for the father of our country, but today I'm going to do just that. So stay tuned, folks, because it's time to give the original George W. his due. to Washington, it's time for Kick-Ass Politics. And now here's your host, Ben Mathis. If he had simply retired from service after the Revolution, George Washington would still be revered as one of the greatest men in American history. A military hero who more than any other person won us independence from Great Britain. But it's what he did after that that set him apart from the other founding fathers, and in my mind, makes Washington one of the most remarkable of all Americans. In particular, there were two crucial turning points in the days following the end of the Revolution, when America hung in the balance between anarchy and order, between tyranny and democracy. And only one man's actions determined the course of a nation. The first instance came at the end of the war in March 1783 in Newburgh, New York. Many of the officers in the Continental Army hadn't been paid in months, and rumors spread that the Congress was broke and wouldn't have the funds to pay the pensions they'd been promised. There was open talk among Washington's own men of armed insurrection. An anonymous letter circulated among the officers in the Newburgh camp called for a meeting on March 11th to propose an ultimatum to Congress 
that they immediately make good on payments promised to the officers or face a potential military coup. George Washington got wind of this and suggested that instead the officers should postpone the meeting by four days, at which time one of Washington's own lieutenants would meet with the disgruntled officers to discuss their grievances. Once they were assembled for the meeting, the officers were taken aback when George Washington himself walked in. Washington then gave a short but impassioned speech counseling patience and warning them against anyone who, quote, wickedly attempts to open the floodgates of civil discord and deluge our rising empire in blood. Then Washington produced a letter from a member of Congress in a masterstroke of theatrical genius. He fumbled with the first few lines, and then he took a pair of glasses out of his pocket. Many of these officers had served alongside Washington for years, and they had never seen their commander-in-chief don a pair of reading glasses. He said, Gentlemen, you will permit me to put on my spectacles, for I have not only grown gray, but almost blind in service of my country. Realizing that they weren't the only ones who had sacrificed, the disgruntled officers felt petty and ashamed of their actions. Many of them even wept as Washington read the letter. And the Newburgh conspiracy fell apart right then and there, thanks to one man, George Washington. Nine months later, following the Treaty of Paris, in which Britain agreed to recognize U.S. independence and withdraw British troops, George Washington disbanded his army, and on December 23rd, he handed over his sword to the President of Congress, and resigned as commander-in-chief of the Continental Army to retire to Mount Vernon. When King George III of England heard about this, he said of Washington, If he does that, if he returns to his farm, he will be the greatest man in the world. Think about that. Julius Caesar, Napoleon Bonaparte, Fidel Castro, Idi Amin, Kim Il-sung, in the long history of the world, the list of military leaders who won a war and then didn't seize power is pretty darn short. George Washington had complete control of the Continental Army. He could have very easily marched on Congress and taken the reins of power for himself. Colonists were still used to the idea of a monarchy, and Washington was by far the most popular man in America, so no one would have even raised an objection. But instead, he chose to stand down and retire to his farm. Well, retirement didn't last very long for George Washington. In 1787, he was persuaded to be a delegate to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, and he was unanimously elected to preside over the convention. In its original intent, Congress had simply charged the delegates with the task of amending the Articles of Confederation not completely overhauling the entire system of government and writing a new constitution. But Washington, like James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, saw that drastic changes were needed. He didn't speak often, but when he did, George Washington made it count. He urged the delegates not to settle, but to hold themselves to a higher standard and create a system that was best for the country. Washington didn't engage in debate during the convention, but as chairman of the proceedings, all eyes were on him, and when the delegates spoke, they were addressing George Washington. Though many of them favored a weak executive branch, the delegates formed the office of president with Washington in mind. 
and so they felt more comfortable in trusting greater powers to a man of his integrity. Sure enough, less than two years later, George Washington was elected the first president of the United States and the only president ever elected unanimously by the Electoral College. George Washington had a tough task ahead of him. Americans had never known any form of government other than monarchy, so he knew that a society deeply rooted in patriarchy would expect their president to be a firm manager with broad powers. But he also knew that if he was to set America on the right course, he had to change the political culture and sell Americans on the idea of an elective Republican system of government. With this in mind, George Washington was adamant about the separation of powers among the three branches of government as provided for in the Constitution. And he led by example, respecting the powers designated to the legislative and judicial branches, and sometimes defending the powers outlined for his own office. His first act as president was to appoint a Supreme Court, And then, once he had done so, he stepped back and allowed the judicial branch to do its job without interference. Washington took a similar approach to the legislative branch. In his first inaugural speech, Washington didn't recommend any new laws, saying that he trusted the men in Congress to do it. When Congressman James Madison sent President Washington a list of proposed amendments, Washington simply said he hoped that they would be approved and offered no further advice. As much as possible, he wanted to stay out of Congress's business, and he wanted Congress to stay out of his. Well, in a moment, we'll look at Washington's equally firm stance on protecting the powers of his own office and the many precedents he set that are still observed today. That in just a moment. This portion of the podcast is sponsored by Gold Medal Wine Club. Since 1992, they've been America's leading independent wine club. Unlike other wine clubs, Gold Medal Wines features the really unique and hard-to-find boutique wineries. These aren't the kinds of wines that you're going to find just at your grocery store. These are the real hidden gems. And virtually every wine they sell meets their strict selection criteria that includes multiple medals from major wine competitions and high ratings from Wine Spectator, Wine Enthusiast, and other national wine publications. And right now, if you go to the show site at kickasspolitics.com and click on our special link on the sponsor page, Gold Medal Wine Club will give you up to 45% off wines rated 90 points and up. Plus, they'll even throw in free shipping. For all your wine desires, Gold Medal Wine Club. If you like Kickass Politics and you want to keep us on the air, then please support the show by making a donation to our GoFundMe campaign at GoFundMe.com backslash kickasspolitics. That's G-O-F-U-N-D-M-E dot com backslash kickasspolitics. Or go to the show website and click on the donate link. Your support will help keep us producing new and even more interesting programs in the future. That's GoFundMe.com backslash kickasspolitics. And now back to the rest of the show. Welcome back. We're talking about George Washington's almost obsessive observance of the separation of powers established in the Constitution and his relatively hands-off policy towards Congress. But he was also very protective of his own constitutional powers as president. When he negotiated an agreement with Great Britain on peaceful trade between the two nations, he asked Congress to ratify the agreement known as the Jay Treaty. 
Jeffersonians in Congress were suspicious of reestablishing ties with Britain, and they demanded to see all papers relating to the negotiation with Britain before they would agree to fund the provisions of the treaty. George Washington simply refused, asserting what is now known as the executive privilege of the president and stating that the boundaries stated in the Constitution should be preserved. Congress eventually caved and ultimately approved the treaty anyway. In a related matter, when hostilities broke out between Great Britain and France, many in Congress felt the United States should take the side of France. After all, France had been our best ally during the Revolution. But George Washington knew that our young country could not afford another war, so he declared U.S. neutrality in the war between England and France, establishing that while Congress had the power to declare war, the president had the power to declare peace. Washington wasn't brazen in his exercise of executive power, though. During his eight years in office, Washington only used his presidential veto power twice, once on ideological grounds over a bill redrawing congressional districts, and the other time to reject a bill that would have cut the standing army in half and left America vulnerable to military attack. In almost every way, George Washington had to make it up as he went along, and he was very aware that every decision he made as president could set a precedent for those who followed him. For instance, the Constitution in the vaguest possible way provided for the appointment of officers to head the various executive-level departments. But it was Washington who appointed the first presidential cabinet and set the standard for what the cabinet should be and do. Today's president has 15 cabinet-level positions, but the first cabinet only consisted of four members, Thomas Jefferson as Secretary of State, Alexander Hamilton as Secretary of Treasury, Henry Knox, Secretary of War, and Edmund Randolph, his attorney general. Washington established that the cabinet answered directly to the president, not the Congress. Washington also set the precedent that his secretaries would not be a council of equals with the president, nor would they make decisions by committee. As the chief executive, Washington would listen to his advisors, who often took differing positions on an issue, and then President Washington would make a decision. But perhaps George Washington's most important contribution as president was in his refusal to run for a third term. By retiring from public life, George Washington created a tradition of peaceful transition of power that was almost entirely unique to the world in his day. And since then, his successors have largely honored the two-term precedent set by Washington, with Congress signing the term limits into law with the 22nd Amendment in 1951. And all of this is to say nothing of the important laws, the countless traditions and other precedents, both great and small, that George Washington created during his eight years as president. He established the Bank of the United States to put the young nation on a firm financial footing. He signed the first U.S. copyright protections into law. He was the one who insisted that America needed a separate federal city that wasn't part of or governed by an existing city or state. Having worked as a surveyor in his youth, George Washington personally chose the site for the nation's capital, and he oversaw the design of the city that would bear his name. He made Thanksgiving a federal holiday. He established the tradition of a president placing his hand on the Bible when he took the oath of office and adding the words, So help me God, at the end of it. He started the tradition of a president giving a farewell address. 
In fact, in many ways, Washington's farewell address has served as a valedictory for those who would follow in his footsteps, a guide for navigating the difficult waters ahead, and a reaffirmation of the values upon which our republic was founded. And to this very day, on that third Monday in February, be it President's Day or whatever you choose to call it, that same farewell address is read on the floor of the U.S. Senate. This year it was read by Senator John Hoven of North Dakota. So yeah, would it really kill us to give George Washington his own day? Columbus gets a day. Martin Luther King gets a day. But not the father of our nation? The one man without whom the United States of America almost certainly wouldn't exist today? It just seems a little bit, well, ungrateful. If you enjoyed today's episode on George Washington, then I think you'd really enjoy a revealing book on our first president called The Ascent of George Washington, The Hidden Political Genius of an American Icon, by my guest tomorrow, John Furling. And right now, you can download the audio version of this book for free with a special promotion for our listeners from audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics for a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook download, which can be The Ascent of George Washington by my guest tomorrow, John Furling, or any of Audible's 180,000 titles for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, iPad, or MP3 player. That's audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or click the sponsor link on our webpage for your free audiobook download. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast on iTunes so you can automatically get new episodes as they become available. And while you're there, I appreciate it if you leave us a review. That helps with the show's rankings on iTunes and our advertisers. And if you really like Kick-Ass Politics and want to help keep us on the air, then please support the show by making a donation to our GoFundMe campaign at GoFundMe.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or you can go to the show website at kickasspolitics.com and click on the donate button. Your support will help keep us producing new programs in the future, and I'd even like to expand to two or three new episodes a week so your donation will help us reach that goal. That's gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or click on the donate link at kickasspolitics.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickasspolitics.com or leave a voicemail on the toll-free listener hotline at 844-KA-POLITICS. In the next episode, I'll talk with author and historian John Furling about the political genius of George Washington. In this day and age, we've given George Washington an almost godlike status, and we tend to think of him as being above politics. But the truth is, the reason he rose so high and was so effective is because beneath that stony, noble exterior, he had a remarkable sense of political timing and showmanship. And he was just as brilliant for what he didn't say as for what he did say. So be sure to download the next podcast. It's interesting stuff and a whole other side of George Washington. Until then, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass Politics.
This podcast may not be reproduced without express written permission. Kick-Ass Politics is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.